And just so you don't have to Google it, the temperature on the bird, 165, is done. Just saving you some effort on that. 165. Everybody say 165. All right. Just trying to keep you out of the ER on Thanksgiving there. And uh, your loved, your beloved relatives, you know, 165. Not 175, because then, then you're going to need more gravy. That's the deal on that. 165 is where you want to be. And uh, the way to do that, by the way, is to turn your, uh, is to bathe that baby in canola oil, put it in uncovered at about uh, 500 degrees for 30 minutes, and uh, that'll get that'll get the uh, the breast area all nice and crispy and brown, and then cover it with some uh, foil. Cover that thing up. Cover the aluminum foil. Leave the rest of it uncovered. You got to make a little shield, like a a breastplate of righteousness. Just think of it like that for that part of the bird. And then when you put it back in the oven at 350, uh, then you cover that. Otherwise, that white meat gets all dried out. You don't want that. You, so you, put, you make that shield before you put it in the oven. Before you put it in the oven, you put the foil on there, you shape it, you spray that down with, 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 with butter, you know, all right, or spray, whatever you're going to, butter's better. And um, I'm just saying, and, and, uh, and then you put that on, on there when you put it back in the oven at 350 until it's done to what temperature? Thank you, 65, that's very good. Then, then, your white, then the white won't be overcooked and the dark will be perfect. Turn it halfway through because there's more heat in the back of the oven than the front. You'll be good to go. It'll be fun. All right, here we go. So 500 degrees for about 30 minutes. Sure. Yeah. You can, if you're a little frightened of 500 degrees, 500 degrees is, about as, is, is usually as high as a household oven will go. But if you're a little frightened of it, you can put it at 475 if you want. And, um, but what it'll do for 30 minutes, I promise you, at 30 minutes, that thing will be just perfectly brown. It'll be, like, it'll be it, right then, 30 minutes, it'll be exactly what your family's going, oh, my gosh, that's the greatest turkey ever. Um, but then cover it. Then you've got to cover it the rest of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's what they were doing. Don't ever stuff a bird either. Don't ever put stuffing in a bird. That'll slow down your cooking time, and it's just mush. You don't want to do that anyway. Cook the dressing. That's make dressing, not stuffing. Put garlic. Put whole garlic in there. Chop it in half. Stuff a garlic in with a. Chop an apple in half. Stick it in there. Uh, apple, a garlic, and then get the herb mix from like Publix or Kroger's or whatever, the, the, the poultry herb mix, and just stuff it all in there, chop an onion in half, don't even have to peel it, stick it in there, and uh, boom! Amen. It'll be happening. Do I what? Do I, yeah, I do. I do brine. I do brine, yes. I do. But you don't have to. I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, whatever. But... Uh, Add extra step, you know, but it'll come out juicy, I promise. Okay, here we go. Well, let's do Romans. <laughs> Bonus coverage. Bonus Thanksgiving coverage. That's right. Hey, it comes out okay, doesn't it? So far, so good. Turkeys are notorious liars, by the way. Um, you got to, and your oven is the biggest liar in the room. Your oven's a liar. So you got to get one of those oven thermometers so you know what the temperature in there is. And get one of those little 
um, Insta-read thermometers, you stick in that thing and don't hit a bone because the bone will lie. And uh, get, it, get it right in the meat there. So, okay. I just want to run a cooking class. I really do, man. <laughs> cooking's, more fun than, cooking's more fun than Romans at times. I mean, you know, <laughs> especially Romans 7. Romans 7. Oh, man. I was, doing, I was getting the study guide ready for next semester. I was doing Romans uh, 7 and 8 last week, and I got in the middle of Romans 7. I just went, ha, 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 forget it. I, I think we'll just skip this. I think that, <laughs> that was the conclusion I got to on Romans 7. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see. Let's get over to uh, page 50 in your study guide page 50. Now, what we looked at last week in Romans 1, 18 through 32 was the wrath of God, which is God gave them over, and speaking with reference to the idolatrous behavior of the Gentiles. But what we come to now is God's wrath, which is a different kind of wrath, which is wrath which is stored up. And this has to do with religious hypocrisy. For the licentious, for the licentious, the licentious hurl themselves headlong into their behaviors which lead to personal and societal disintegration. The legalist, the self-righteous person at the other end of the spectrum, is not sinning in the same way. And so they do not have the same kinds of consequences in their lives. They are not more immediate. They are not even more visible. The great danger, of course, of, self-right- of self-righteousness and legalism is that you appear to be good. You appear to be righteous. But your self-salvation efforts and your hypocrisy with regard to your standards that you require of others but not yourself means that you don't experience the same kinds of judgment. But judgment is just as real. But it's a stored-up wrath rather than an in-history wrath, which is encountered by the self-righteous. So in, in, in Romans chapter 2, we pick up on a different kind of people who are without excuse. Now, I want you to notice that phrase. Therefore, you have no excuse. Romans 2 verse 1. Now, if you compare that, with Romans chapter 1, right? Verse 20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So the person who does not have this religious background, this person who is looking at God's attributes seen through the book of creation is without excuse with reference to the reality of God. In Romans chapter 2, we have a different group of people, and that is those who are passing judgment on the people in Romans chapter 1. They equally are without excuse. They are without excuse too because they're dealing with a different book of Revelation. They not only have the creation bearing witness to them, They have the scriptures which bear witness to them. Luther always talked about God having two books by which he speaks to us. The book of nature, creation, and the book of scripture. And his voice 
is in both. So you get this, don't you, in Psalm 19. The heavens are what? Telling or declaring the glory of God. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no sound, but there is no place where their voice is not heard. But then halfway through the psalm, in Psalm 19, there's a contrast between the heavens are telling, the voice of God, the glory of God, God speaking in creation. But then it says, but the law of the Lord or the word of the Lord is perfect and it restores the soul. And he begins to sing the praises of Scripture, God's revelation in Scripture. So while the one tells the glory, the other converts the soul. And those but both are needed. And a perfect example of this, by the way, we're soon to be into Christmas. Um, oh, I just had thoughts about going into Christmas recipes, and I had to resist that right there. I just pat it down. Anyway, <laughs> I rebuke that in Jesus' name. Right. Um, the, um, uh, uh, is, is the story of the Magi from the East. What, what brings them? What brings them? We have seen his what? His star. So something in nature, the heavens were declaring. The star got them to Jerusalem. But in Jerusalem, they had to find out where he was. And what got them the rest of the way? The scriptures got them the rest of the way. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So Herod inquired. And they said, well, as it says in Micah the, the prophet, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are the least among the tribes of Judah, yet... From him shall come forth he who has been chosen to be ruler. So the star gets them to Jerusalem. The scripture gets them to Jesus. And both books are essential in our lives. So those who've never heard the scriptures are without excuse. They're without excuse. Because the book of Revelation in nature is clear to the degree that, they, that they, they can have a knowledge of God, and then they have the internal witness as well of the law of God written in their hearts. More about that in just a moment. But here in Romans 2, we're dealing with those who not only have the book of nature, but they also have the book of Scripture, the text. Let me put it to you this way. How well did the people who condemned Jesus and sent him to be crucified at the hands of the Romans, how well did those people know the text? Very, very well. So that should give every one of us pause. Because it is precisely in our situation where we think we know that our familiarity with the text and our religious observance, we can start to move into a place of self-deception where we imagine ourselves to be better than we are and easily slip over into pointing the finger at others and condemning them. Now, whenever you head that direction, you're in Romans 2. Any takers? (laughs) So what Paul's going to point out is that the one case in Romans 1 of self-absorbed licentiousness, the pursuit of open sin, and on the other hand in Romans 2, the self-absorbed self-righteousness of the person who is the legalist, both lead them to the same place. They are trapped in sin. The shape of sin in their lives is different, but it has the same effect. 
the wages of sin is what? Death. And so the Savior comes to save both. It's Jews and Greeks. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So both the Gentile and the Jew, even though the sins look different, they're both trapped by sin and both need a Savior. That's where Paul's going with this. So Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment... For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, oh man, so Paul's got this kind of person in view here. He's going he's to talk to somebody. He's going to have a conversation. Oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Let's read through verse 11. Who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, eternal life, But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. All right. So here what we have is something which is a great danger, especially for somebody standing at a table offering you instruction. Because this person is an instructor. Paul has a man in view. You, oh man. Who is this man? Well, look back at it just a minute in um, uh, verse 3. Do you suppose this, oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself? that you will escape the judgment of God. So here's a person who's, who knows God's word and um, can discern that which is wicked and evil by that word, but then condemns others who do them. But he hypocritically has the same things in his life, but he keeps them masked. Verse 17, if you bear the name Jew, this is Romans two seventeen now, if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and the truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Wow. So 
Those are some difficult passages, aren't they? Particularly for those of us who offer Christian instruction, for those who offer biblical instruction. And he goes through this wonderful, wonderful set of rhetorical phrases. You're a corrector of the foolish, an instructor of the ill-informed, and so on. And he's saying, don't you preach to yourself? Don't you, you who boast in the Scriptures, do you listen? Are you listening? You who tell people not to do things, are you doing them? Now, why does Paul do that? Well, he goes, he, goes to the, he goes to the people among whom he had lived. What? Who was Paul? Remember? He's a rabbi. He's, an, he's a Pharisee. He's an instructor. He's sat at the feet of the leading theologian of his day, Gamaliel. And so he, he, he chooses a, a, a person who is an instructor, the person who you would expect to have the most righteous conduct, but he uncovers something in their conduct and in their heart, and that is hypocrisy. So, we have here the hypocritical instructor. God's justice is always perfect and impartial, and justice, judgment, reward in history as well as eternity is real. So what happens is, by our hypocrisy, God's glory is besmirched by our covenant infidelity. And there are numerous examples which are pointed to here. Paul's use of this phrase, the, the name of the Lord is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, is very ironic. In chapter 1, he's dealing, he's dealing with the sins of the Gentiles, the idolatry of the Gentiles. And, and then here, what he says is, the people who would point to those sins and say, look how wicked they are, actually have God's name blasphemed among those people because of their own hypocrisy. So the inability of religious people to admit our sinfulness and be open about our brokenness and our need for a Savior is exactly what contributes to the, the, the Gentile society going, your, your God has no credibility. Your God has no credibility at all. Um, this, this, um, uh, there's numerous examples I could, I could point to in this regard, but it's important for us to think first about our own selves, our own hearts, our own impulses towards self-righteousness, towards wearing a mask and covering ourselves up instead of being open about the fact that we too need a Savior. Now, right in the middle of this section, in 12 through 16, is a little section on the law of God and natural law and the Gentiles. And Paul talks about people who sin without the law and people who sin with the law. The religious person knows the law. They know it. They know what the law says. This Gentile over here doesn't have the written law, but what does, what, what does even the, the Gentile who doesn't have the Scripture have? You already know this. Right, they got, they got something down in there. they got this awareness of the knowledge of God. So Paul's kind of drawing back now from Romans chapter 1, and he's going to bring that in, and he's going to bring back this idea of the interior witness and the exterior witness of Scripture, okay? Because he said something interesting. He said God will judge without partiality. So let's, let's look at this in verse 12. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. It's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law 
will be justified. I'll just stop there for just a second. Um, you go, well, is Paul kind of contradicting himself there? Is he teaching justification by works of the law? Well, what do you already know Paul thinks about justification by works of the law? In Galatians, he writes, no one can be justified by works of the law. So what's he saying? All right, this is, this is like the, the preacher standing up and saying, every single one of you who perfectly obey the law of God will be just before him. And that would be true. But of course, what do you immediately think? Well, I'm, I'm shot. <laughs> That's what you think, because if I'm breathing, I'm sinning, right? If I had a humble day, I'd be proud of it. So, so, so we just, we're just like, oh, I'm, a, I'm a complete disaster. So when Paul says here, the doers of the law will be justified, he's not contradicting himself. He's pointing out the simple fact that, so that means what? That's, that's, that isn't going to work, okay? So people perish without the written law. Why? Because there is a law. Where is it? It's in their hearts. Other people perish under the law. They have the written law, and they think, well, if I could just keep that law, but they what? But they can't. So who needs a Savior? Oh, everybody. Okay. So that's where Paul's going with this. All right. It is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So he's referring back to the Gentiles over here, and he says there's a law that's written in their hearts. And if you, if you talk to somebody who's not a believer, they have no experience of the gospel, you tell them they need a Savior, one of the responses, if it can be, you, you might hear this, I've heard it frequently, I'm a pretty what? I'm a pretty good person. Okay, I get it, and they're not lying. They're not. They haven't got a full assessment of the situation, but what, what are they responding to when they say, you know, I'm a pretty good person? What are they responding to? The inner, this inner law. And what they're doing is they're keeping score. They're keeping score. They know what they shouldn't do. And they, and they, 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 they kind of go, well, you know, everybody, everybody makes mistakes. I mean, to err is, and forgive is divine. I mean, yeah, yeah, we make, make mistakes, but honestly, honestly, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. They're listening to this interior voice, and they're, they're keeping score. And they're basically, if, if, we, if, we, if they say a, a kind of basic awareness, let's just say they got five commandments, you know, all right? Maybe the second half of the Ten Commandments. They got six, because the first four have to do with God, and the last six have to do with how you treat people. Okay, and they go, yeah, yeah, you know, I've never coveted my neighbor's wife, and I, I don't bear false witness, and I've been a faithful spouse, and, and I, I'm nice to my parents. I found the, the well, it, no, it wasn't that good a home I put them in, actually. Um, uh, you know, I mean, what, however it is you're keeping score, right? You kind of get to the end of the list, and you think, well, I'm doing okay. I'm a good person, right? This interior law, which is in every person, is what Paul's referring to. Now, of course, the problem is, how perfect do you have to be in the law? That's the problem. That's the problem, is they don't understand the the perfect standard that's necessary. All right, so you can sin without the law, written, because the law is in your heart, and you can sin with the law, 
because it is written and you know it. In both cases, humans find themselves without hope on judgment day because the standard is perfection and none of us keeps the law perfectly. In fact, sin so deeply dwells in us that when we obey the law in either sense, we immediately condemn others in others what we perceive to be law-breaking, which we've avoided. Even when we are doing it right, our first impulse is to condemn others who don't do the good stuff we do. Why, do, why aren't you as good as me? That's part of what comes up in us. That's, that's, that's how dead in sin we are that even when we do what is required, one of the first things that happens in us is pride at what we've done and condescension towards others who aren't as good as us. That's a frightening reality, right? So this self-righteous pride and self-exaltation is death. We also consistently fail to deal with the internal dimensions of law-keeping, which are also included in the standards of perfection and holiness. Listen to Jesus' words. Do not think I came to abolish the law. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You shall be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do not judge. Now, how's that for raising the bar? See, does Jesus say, does Jesus, when it comes to the law, say, oh, oh, it doesn't matter anymore. The law, don't worry about the law. No, the law doesn't matter anymore. Is that what he does? No. Is that what Paul's going to do? No. He says, does faith, in fact, when we get to Romans 3, we'll say, does faith nullify the law? No, we establish the law. The law, we will discover, exposes our sin and our need for a Savior. It has many functions. We'll, we'll get into it. Romans 7, oh my gosh. Okay, we'll get there. But the whole point that he's making here right now is the standard is utter and complete perfection, not simply in terms of external conformity to a standard, but internal conformity. Jesus says stuff like this. You've, you've heard you shall not commit adultery. I say to you what? If you even what? Look. You're going to hell, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so if you had been in Jesus' congregation that day, Sermon on the Mount, right, what are you thinking? Well, crumbs. <laughs> I mean, what, 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 I'm supposed to, I got to be perfect? I got to be, how perfect, how perfect? As perfect as who? The Father in heaven. I got to be that perfect? How's that going to work? I'm not. I can't be. What are you talking about, Jesus? So who needs a Savior? Oh, yeah, okay. So, in other words, the possibility of self-righteousness is utterly and completely eliminated by Jesus' teaching on the law. And Paul takes Jesus' teaching and reinforces it. So, the doers of the law are justified. Well, that's a fatal blow. Look at verse 13. It's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. What's the problem? Nobody does it. So there's no way to be justified unless it is by grace through faith. John Calvin wrote, In forming an estimate of sins, we are often imposed upon by imagining that the more hidden, the less 
heinous they are. That's a false imagination. That the more hidden, the less heinous. Now, the consequences of hidden sins are different than external sins, but they are not less heinous at all. And they are still things which will weigh our souls down to judgment if they're not dealt with by the cross. So what does this do? It eliminates the possibility of boasting. Look at verse 25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. Now remember, there was two schools of Pharisees, the Hillel sect and the Shammai sect. The Hillel sect was the more liberal sect. The Shammai sect was the more strict, it was the strictest sect. Of which sect was Paul a member? Shammai. And, and he, that sect taught, if you break one commandment, you've broken what? Right, and that comes right through in the New Testament. That view of the law, the most strict view of the law, is what's in the New Testament. All right, that's the background. So Paul says, oh, you want to get circumcised? Now here he's hinting at something, which is this undercurrent that's going through the early church, which is if you're a Gentile and you become a believer in Jesus and you're male, you have to be circumcised because you've belo- you belong now to the Jewish Messiah. So you need to start doing the Jewish rituals. Well, Paul says, that's a great idea. That's fantastic. Yeah, make sure and do that. As long as you're willing to keep how much of the law? Because you can't, the law is not a cafeteria menu you get to select from. So if you want to do the circumcision thing, guess what you're signing up for? See you at the temple and bring a goat. And if you think that your circumcision is going to give you something to boast about before God, you better make sure that there isn't a single commandment you've broken. Not one. Not one. Because if you break one, what? Broke them all. But if you're a... Verse 25. If you're a transgressor of the law... Oh, okay. Let's just stop there. Hands up. Anybody here? Transgressor of the law? Okay. So the people who are hearing this are having the same experience we have when we read this. We're going, but if you're a transgressor of the law, and everybody sitting in the congregation that day says what? Well, that would be me. Okay. And you're circumcised. You're, whether you're Jewish or you're a Gentile convert, he says your circumcision has become uncircumcision. It's just been undone. And you're thinking if you're a Gentile convert and you went through that, well, crumbs. I went through all of that for what? Thanks, Paul. Wish, Pastor, you didn't tell me, right? Okay, so this is kind of a funny verse, actually. All right, all right. some of you are like not sure whether you should laugh or not, but there you are. So if the uncircumcised man, the Gentile, keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Of course, does anybody keep the law? No, okay. So who needs a Savior? Everybody, okay, yeah. So so he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that which is of the heart, 
by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So in other words, what has to happen is not something related to the external, but something that is related to the internal. In order to be right with God, a change of heart must take place. A heart has to be transformed. Who's the true Israelite? The true Israelite, as Paul will testify in his own autobiographical statement in Philippians 3, is not somebody who has all the external marks, but somebody who has a heart that has been changed, whom God affirms. Not somebody who has all the external marks so that people go, oh, what a great person but somebody whose heart has been changed so that God says he is mine. What does that do? What does that do? This means that what's happened is Israel, even though it has all the external marks of religious fidelity, has become Gentile in their hearts. Idolatry in the heart is part of the human condition. And simply having external marks of religion doesn't change it. So in chapter 3 now, verse 1, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Now, if you just stop there, you might be thinking Paul's about to say, well, nothing. But that's not what he says. Having said all this, you'd think, well, if you're, if you're the Gentile, you're going, well, thankfully, I don't have to get circumcised. I, I, my heart has to be changed. If you're Jewish, you're thinking, what's the point? I, what, why, why, have I, why do we have this history? Why, why do we have these rites? Why do we have all these ceremonies? Is there any benefit to any of this stuff? And Paul says, actually, great. In every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So the first thing about the Jewish people is it is to them that the scriptures, as a community of people, it is to them that the scriptures were given. The oracles of God were given to the Jewish people. And it is a gift from God to them and a gift to God to the human race through them. So... One of the things that Paul will deal with here in Romans is the arrogance of Gentiles towards the Jews. The Gentiles are going, well, we've been brought in to the kingdom, and remember, the Jews were expelled from Rome, now they're back. And so how are they received back? That's part of the underlying tension. You remember back to our introductory material on this. And so one of the things that Paul's saying to the Gentiles here is, you need to remember the gifts that God gave the Jews. And you who have a Jewish background need to appreciate the gifts God gave you. That these things were necessary and part of the Messiah being brought into the world. What then? If some, some who? Jews, did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, just as it is written, that you, God, may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So now he's dealing with the issue of people judging not one another, but judging God. The temptation is to look at this radical new thing that's happening with the new covenant and the arrival of the Messiah and the inclusion of the Gentiles and to think that somehow... All that was leading up to that moment is a failure. It's a failure. Like God's word did not have effect. And Paul says that's not the case at all. 
Look, he says, if, if the fact that some people to whom that scripture was given, and some, pe- some of those people who were given those rites and rituals didn't believe in Jesus, does that mean that God has failed? Does that mean that God's word isn't true? And Paul says what? No, not at all. Now, when you get over to Romans 9 and 10 and 11, he's going to take this little section here, and we'll be referring back to it next year. And, and, and he's going to unpack the way that looks. What's that, what's that mean? That these, that these people who, why, why, why is it that there's so many who didn't believe in Jesus? And, and has, does that represent a failure somehow? Or is that actually, and Paul will make this case, is that actually fairly typical of Israel's history? Because again, the true Israelite is not one who is external, but what? In the heart. So what Paul will do is he'll go back through Israel's history and he'll say there's always been people who had the name Israel, but their hearts were far away from God. Those of you who did the Isaiah study, you can remember that. So this, what Paul's saying is this is not a new phenomenon. He'll make that case in Romans. The fact that there are people who have the scriptures and name the name but don't really believe with their heart, that's not a new phenomenon. Now, thankfully, of course, in the church, we don't face that problem, do we? (laughs) We don't face an issue like self-righteous people who name the name but don't really have the heart. Oh, Oh, but wait, right? That's a huge danger, isn't it? It's a huge danger. So... We're always being brought back to the fact that God is true. Verse 5. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. God is not unrighteous. God is not unjust. His judgments and wrath are always perfect. May it never be. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? If through my lie... The truth of God abounded to his glory, then why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come? Their condemnation is just. What then? So here's the concluding issue Paul says there are people who are slandering him, saying that Paul's doctrine of sin, the pervasive sin of mankind, points to our need for a Savior. So some people are reporting that what Paul's teaching is just sin. Keep sinning. Do all the sin you can because you can't stop it anyway. And the more you sin, the more you're going to know you need a Savior. And Paul says, that's crazy town. That is not what I'm saying. But that's what's been slanderously reported concerning us. So again, remember, Romans is a letter of introduction that Paul is writing to people who he's not met, but they've heard things about him. They've heard things about his message. So then he makes this concluding statement here, verse 9. What then? Are we, the Jews, better than they, the Gentiles? Say the next three words with me. Not at all. Four. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So while Israel has distinct advantages, being entrusted with the scriptures and the rites and so on, they also, in a certain other way, have no advantage. 
They have advantages, but in another way, they're no different than a Gentile. They have this advantage that God entrusted the Scriptures to them. They have this in common, and there's no advantage, there's no distinction. How many people are under sin? All people, regardless of being Jews or Gentiles. The Gentiles know they're under sin because of this internal law that's in their heart, even if they've never heard the Scriptures. The Jewish people know they're under sin not only because they're aware of the internal law, which they also have, but because the Scriptures, the law of God, mediated through Moses to them and God's law given to them. They know they've broken it, and they know they break it in their heart. Paul talks about covetousness in his own heart in Romans chapter 7. Israel's sins, are we better than they? The great privileges entrusted to Israel only underscore the great infidelity that they committed. This is the theme of the Old Testament prophets as well. This is not anti-Semitic language. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jesus, and Paul were all Jewish. They broke the covenant. All right, now I just want to stop here for a second and make a note of something because some people can hear stuff in the wrong way. We live in a post-Holocaust age. And so we're very, very keenly aware of the fact that Jewish people have been persecuted by those who name the name of Christ. And so somebody could take what's written here in Romans or in other places in the text and and say this is a very anti-Jewish statement, a very anti-Semitic statement. But let's remember, Paul's what? He's Jewish. Okay. Jesus was Jewish. All the apostles were Jewish. All the prophets were and there's nobody harder on them than themselves. All right. So reading it in an anti-Semitic, Gentile arrogance over the Jews kind of way, rather than as an internal prophetic critique, is absolutely diabolical. It is not a Christian, Gentile reading of the Jews. It is an internal prophetic critique that has predecessors among the Old Testament prophets who were themselves Jews and called Israel to account to God because they'd been given those oracles from God. So there's no room for anti-Semitism in the Christian church. We shouldn't have any room for that in our hearts. When you hear people attacking, uh, and I'm not talking about the political state of Israel, I'm talking about Jewish people. Let's make a distinction. All right, you can have disagreements with politics and international relations and all that stuff. It's a different issue. But when you hear people being anti-Jewish, you're hearing something which is anti-Christian. It's anti-Christian. So, so don't take what Paul's saying here in, and allow it in any way to be a kind of foundation or formulaic expression for any form of anti-Semitism. There was great failure under the Old Covenant. As soon as Israel agrees to obey the law, they break it. As soon as they agree to obey the law, they break it. And as soon as we're aware of the law, we break it. In fact, you see this, don't you, in the lives of the hearts of your children and grandchildren? What's one sure way to make sure that they do something wrong? Tell them not to do it. Don't go over there. And what, what is the very first thing? that When your mom told you, don't go over there, what's the very, even if you'd never thought about it, when, once your mom said, don't go over there, what's the first thing you wanted to do? Get over there. What? Why not? There's got to. It's got to be good, right? So as soon as any law, this is how dark our hearts are. This is how broken by sin our hearts are. As soon as something good from God is given to us uh, by a standard, we want to break it. 
And that's, that, that goes right back to, to the very beginning of who we are in our human nature. So, all, Paul says, are under sin. All are under sin. Now, just like there's the vice list in Romans chapter 1, there is now, in verses 9 through 18, this issue of a top-to-toe description of sinful man and his state. Now, that's what we're going to pick up on next week. And we'll take Romans 3, picking it up again in verse 9, are we better than they? And the answer is no. And we'll get down to verse 20. But in leaving this, I want to go down to chapter 3, verse 20, just as a place to close. Look at this. Because by the works of the law, what? No flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So again, in Romans 2, when Paul says, it's the doers of the law that will be justified, he's not suggesting to you that you can be justified by the works of the law. He's pointing out the fact that you can't be. And that what the law does is it actually exposes sin. It reveals what sin is, number one, and then number two, it reveals it in our own hearts and points out our desperate brokenness and need for a Savior. So we don't meet next week because it's the day before uh, Thanksgiving. And, um, but we'll meet two weeks from today. Uh, we have two more. We have the 29th and then in, uh, one in December is right. Yeah, that's right. So I'm looking forward to that. All right, let's stop there and see what questions you guys have about what we've covered so far. You did very well, by the way. All of chapter 2, down to 3, 9. I told you we'd get there. Yeah, done? Yes. Gamaliel-ite? Well, the, the Hillel and Shammai were more ancient teachers. but So those were the kind of... Uh, Gamaliel's the primary instructor of his day, but uh, Gamaliel was a Hillel guy. But as you know, all good students rebel against their teachers. Right? That's what, right? You know, you kind of go, yeah, well, my crazy 